0: Hi, my name is Madeline Isabella, and you're listening to Connection to Source, a podcast supported by the Yoga Foundation. In this podcast, our hopeful conversation is with Justin Sinclair. Justin Sinclair is a research fellow at the Nicom Research Institute. He has been researching and studying cannabis in Australia and the United States for the last 15 years. The key areas of his medicinal cannabis experience span several scientific disciplines, including cultivation, botany, genetics, ethnopharmacology, therapeutic applications, and phytochemistry. Justin blends the best of both modern science and traditional knowledge. His clinical interests include osteoarthritis, herb-drug nutrient interactions, digestive disorders, Mental health. Hi, Justin. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie.
0: Such a pleasure to have you on. You're such an interesting um, individual reading your background and everything involved. Um, For those listeners out there, I was just wondering if you could please give a general background on who you are, what you do, what projects you're currently working on, and anything else that's of interest.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, where to start? So um, I guess uh, by, by easiest way of introduction, um, I am a uh, naturopath and, and pharmacognosist. So pharmacognosy is the study of uh, medicines that come from plants, fungi and other natural sources. Um, and the way by which I got there was uh, quite a long one. Um, I was very fortunate, I think, um, when I was younger, um, to have spent some time uh, with various First Nations people, but particularly our own uh, here in Australia. And I've always loved plants. Um, and when I was young, I had the chance to spend some time, as I said, with uh, our First Nations people up in Jabiru in the Northern Territory. Um, and I was always amazed um, just how comfortable they were in the land. You know, they were just so comfortable, they knew what to eat. And I remember thinking, even as a five or six year old, just how handy that would be. Um, and then I guess forward track um, a a little bit more. Um, As a teenager, um, I also had the opportunity to spend some time with the North American First Nations people, uh, particularly uh, the Apache, Cree and and Samish. Um, And that's where I actually started to learn how important plants were as a medicine. And that essentially started me uh, down the road that uh, I now find myself on. But at the moment, uh, I've, I've been a naturopath in clinical practice for 15, 16 years. Um, I'm a research fellow at the Nickham Health Research Institute at Western Sydney University, where I head up the uh, medicinal cannabis research stream and coordinate uh, a lot of the different projects that we've got on uh, in that area. And uh, my own research interest uh, at the moment is uh, cannabis. Um, So I've been uh, working with various groups, particularly the Patient Advocacy Group United in Compassion, um, doing a lot of lobbying and education around cannabis and, and trying to right some of the wrongs um, that may have been uh, uh, done in the past, and uh, just try and bring uh, a lot of the science uh, into uh, why cannabis is such a useful plant as a medicine uh, and others. So I mean that's that's kind of a nutshell where I'm at. I'm a PhD student, um, also looking at uh, cannabis for the Uh, We're looking at the safety and tolerability and effectiveness of uh, medicinal cannabis for the symptomatic management of endometriosis, which is a chronic condition affecting, geez, I think it's one hundred and seventy-six million women worldwide, and about uh, I think eight hundred thousand women in Australia. Um, You know, chronic pain and infertility and uh, a constellation of other uh, really uh, you know awful symptoms that uh, affect their. Uh, life in so many different ways from quality of life you know quality of life issues and um, their ability to study and and, uh, socially engage with others so it's um, that's kind of uh, uh, in a nutshell uh, where I'm at and and some of the projects that I'm doing at the moment.
0: Just a few things on the plate there Um, (laughs) they all sound incredible and it's funny um, looking back through history as well I remember Um, a bit of ancient history not and I've mentioned it before a few times on the podcast but I remember reading there was a mummy um, found in Serbia I think a female thousands and thousands of years ago and they found traces of cannabis in her uh, blood system and they also found traces of cancer and how they obviously put together with anthropologists and all the other archeologists that potentially she was using the cannabis as a form to help with her pain relief. So it's funny how we've kind of done that full cycle and ended up, you know, trying, you know, now with science and evidence to rewrite the history of cannabis and its therapeutic uses.
1: Yeah, all that is old is new and shiny again, isn't it? I mean, it's, um, it's funny about history and how it re- often repeats itself. And um, that's actually another project I, I did forget to mention, which was actually led by uh, Dr. Janet Schloss uh, up at uh, Southern Cross University. I was very privileged to be a co-investigator on it, uh, along with uh, uh, the neurosurgeon um, Charlie Tao, uh, which was investigating medicinal cannabis for glioblastoma multiforme. Uh, which is a very uh, serious and aggressive form of brain cancer. Um, And some of the findings from that um, have certainly suggested that there's improvement in quality of life and certain symptoms. So, um, you know, there are many other studies that are going on around the world specifically looking at cannabis and cancer. Um, But, yeah, I mean, the the list of different clinical indications that cannabis is currently being used for, you know, from anxiety to uh, fibromyalgia to chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, uh, again, my own studies in, in endometriosis, the, the list is actually just quite long. And, and most of that, um, as you brought up, um, is around pain um, and uh, you know, just learning. I mean, we didn't even know that we had an endocannabinoid system in the body uh, until we started studying cannabis. So it's one of the things I've always found quite, um, quite interesting is that as you know, you, you, you read textbooks, you study, you go to college, you know, you go to university, you're learning so much and, and there's so much that we as a people know. But as you start to get through those studies and as you start to read more and more, you actually realize that it's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that we still don't know, um, whether that's about plants or our own body. So it's, uh, that's the beauty, I think, of, of science is it's, uh, it's an exploration for truth.
0: Mm. And even um, at the moment, I'm reading a traditional Chinese medicine book and the comparison between the philosophy in the West and the East, and it was so simple in just a a diagram of the human body. And it was like the body as a machine and deconstructing it through, Mm. you know, mechanics and how maybe potentially in Western medicine, you know, we're like, the brain is like the computer network and we deconstruct our body in that way. And we try to fix it with just you know, oh, your stomach's not working, let's fix that problem, that we don't really branch out beyond. And then you look at the image of the body through Eastern lens and it's, you know, the body is a garden and it's, everything nurtures each other. So if one thing's not working properly, then another element of the body needs to work harder or it disintegrates. And then it's finding that balance. So I think, yeah, that interesting concept of looking at ourselves even if, as we're plants, as if we need to be nurtured and nourished in the same kind of way. And I think, you know, that scientific evidence is now trying to prove that as well.
1: Absolutely. And I, and I think what's even more interesting is that uh, as the scientific evidence grows, um, it actually confirms a great deal about what the ancients knew about the body or what the ancients knew about plants. Um, and uh that's that's one of the the beautiful things is that you know the, our ancestors didn't have the science that we have today and so they use different terms um, that doesn't discount their importance or validity um, science you know necessarily in a way just comes along and actually validates a great deal of it obviously gets rid of some of it as well um, and that's uh, but you know when we start to think about our ancestors and we we think about you know how much they didn't know I, I actually Disagree. Um, I, I think our ancestors knew a great deal. Uh, much we've probably forgotten. Um, and uh, that's that's a great uh, that's much to our, our disadvantage. Um, there's uh, a lot that we um have lost and that we really need to regain. And I think that's one of the most important projects um, out there for you know, maybe future students um, that uh, could look at trying to capture um, and um uh, store and record the information of so many of these First Nations people around the world, um, many of which don't have written records. Um, and I, I, I just think that there's uh, so much to be gained uh, by, by recording that data in a, in a very respectful and honest and open way.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I've done a few research uh, essays and things like that at university, particularly on ayahuasca. And how that transfer of knowledge between the indigenous people of Peru, for example, and um, it's now called spiritual tourism. So looking Mm -hmm. at people traveling around the world to find that spiritual enlightenment through plant medicine or whatever they've come across. And that um, knowledge sharing is kind of disintegrating. And through the sustainability lens, I really had to analyze this plant and the sustainability of the plan and how it's now, you know, not a com- people travelers come and how that knowledge is then being shared to the, those people. And then those people are now going back to America, for example, and sharing it with their community and how that's changing, you know, the way they cultivate the plants because they have to keep up mm. with demands now. So there's a lot of issues when you look at it, for, even from a sustainability lens, the knowledge mm-hmm. of first nations people, is immense, but there's yeah a lot of those issues coming from the knowledge and how it moves forward sustainably.
1: Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean the the old aqueous brew ayahuasca. I mean it's um it's not just one plant, of course. It's it's um uh, two, I believe. I think it's the Banisteriopsis capi mm. uh, the vine, and and that's the monoamine oxidase inhibitor aspect of the brew. And then there's the uh, dimethyltryptamine, um, which is obviously the psychoactive substance from Psychotria viridis, um, and 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 that you're absolutely right is that now that there's this demand, uh, people from around the world trying to reconnect um, or deal with different, um, you know, maybe addiction or or other type of uh, clinical indications, uh, it might not just be purely from a, a spiritual type of um, yearning that they go to to to. Uh, take part in in such ceremonies, but now yeah uh, it's how are the um, shamans how are the people that um, that cultivate the plant or, or not even cultivate but actually just take it from its natural environment i mean is cultivation something that the plant actually can do um, it, does it is it is it open to cultivation uh, and and will that change the chemical complexity uh, they're all really interesting questions i mean we've had the same issue with a plant in herbal medicine in western herbal medicine called hydrastis canadensis uh golden seal which is a, a plant that's used for uh, a variety of different things but particularly gastrointestinal problems and it works just so well that so many herbalists and naturopaths were using it and we almost wild you know it was almost wild crafted out of existence um, and so it was only through a concerted effort by the profession um, that uh, we stopped using it, and that obviously reduced uh, the supply and demand equation. So that's something that I think we we certainly need to be careful of, is um, not just with ayahuasca, but many of these other plants that they, they can be sustained and used, um, as you uh, as you so rightly say, in a sustainable and ecologically friendly way. That's that's also um, supportive uh, of the peoples uh, that use it and who rely upon it.
0: Yeah. And it's very interesting when you look at, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, but my academic advisor was saying, this is obviously I'm coming from a healing perspective, but where does that paradox lie in looking to plants to heal? Like, are there issues again, we're trying to use nature as a resource for us, but how are we Mm. then giving back to it?
1: Mm. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the cruxes of the problem, isn't it? Mm. Is that uh, the medicines? That, I mean, let's. I mean, let's look at plants for a minute. I mean, the World Health Organization has stated that seventy percent of the world's population still rely on plants as a primary source of medicine. So that's got nothing to do with its use as of food, as a textile, as a housing and building material, um, and all of these things. And, Obviously, you know, through the study of things like ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany, it's evident that humans have relied heavily on plants. Um, you know, again, whether it's food, medicine, textile, or even entheogen, you know, as we've kind of just been alluding to, literally meaning the God within or, you know, what what else can we define it as? A substance that connects one with the divine or spirit. Mm. Um, and I think that when we start to consider this type of thing, we're... we're it's, it's very reductionist. We look at just, we're, we're able to take something, but if we don't look at how we can sustain it, it's only hurting ourselves. And I just find for, you know, homo sapiens, apparently intelligent, um, that we treat, that we treat our own environment this way. I mean, it's just, it, it baffles me. Um, and, and there are a lot of things we can point to, um, you know, whether it's just, uh, corporate greed, um, you know, rising populations, all sorts of things. But I really think the former probably has a lot to answer for when it comes to when it comes to that. I mean, some of the other things um, I was just reading the other day, which was, you know, really quite concerning was that um, uh, looking at things like cattle ranching, um, you know, even cattle ranching, which, of course, for those people, you know, that eat meat and we, we, we obviously uh, need a in, you know, an environment to be able to produce that for people, but cattle ranching accounts for around 80% of the current deforestation in the Amazon. I mean, that, that, as, as it's been called, the lungs of the planet. Um, and then you've got another industry, palm oil, um, which according to, you know, various sources, whichever you read, um, accounts for about 27 million hectares of the earth's surface. Uh, and another leading cause of deforestation, particularly in places like Indonesia. So these types of monocultures, whether it is some type of plantation like palm oil, or whether it's, you know, cattle ranching, or whatever the case it might be, the fact is, is that it's changing that ecosystem um, irreparably. Um, And and what, what are we losing when that happens? When they're, you know, losing football fields of Amazon forest, what, what, what medicines are still waiting to be found in there. There could be potential cures or management strategies for all sorts of different indications, whether it's some, you know, lichen or fungus that's in a Madagascan plateau all the way through to in a deep ravine in in a, in a, in the Amazon forest. It's just, that's one of the things that particularly for me um, as someone that not only studies um, but loves plants and everything that they do for us. um, It's a real concern uh because you know the apart from climate change and 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 this environmental destruction i think it's fair to say that plants are going to fare very poorly um if we don't uh take care of them or at least specific plants um obviously there'll be those that adapt to the the situation as it allows but you know what there's uh, depending on the source you read around 250 000 to three hundred and fifty thousand flowering plant species on the planet and according to i think it's the uh Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in the United Kingdom, around 18,000 have actually been studied for medicinal use. And, and just think about that. How many other plants out there that we just haven't studied um, that we could be losing? And, and that's why I'm a bit of an, a rampant conservationist and, and a bit of an uh, ecological warrior because there's, there's so many things that could be of benefit, but we, um, we're just not paying attention.
0: Yeah. And we aren't paying attention. And even, you know, you spoke about the Amazon and football fields being destroyed. It's even simply over the weekend, we had that heat wave, the hottest November night since records began. And I was doing some research on that and how we, the buildings, the way we have constructed our cities doesn't Mm -hmm. facilitate an a healthy environment during those heat waves when you have more greenery when you have more plants when you have more trees the temperatures are lower so Mm. it's just funny how we like can't even sometimes can't even connect the two dots of how we've built cities and society and how much we do need plants to facilitate the environment around us and the ecosystem so yeah sometimes yeah
1: yeah just these concrete jungles aren't they Mm. i mean we um uh, I must admit, as my my family comes from Broken Hill, um, which, mm. as many of your Australian listeners would know, right smack bang out in the middle of the outback, and yep. <laughs> um, you know, red dirt and and very hot. Um, and you know, around there, places like uh, Lightning Ridge and others, where you actually build underground, mm. you live underground so that you can stay cool during all of that heat. And and I've always wondered why in in a country that is not only faced with, you know, bushfires, seasonal bushfires, um, that seem to be getting worse, why we build with wood, why we build with, um, you know, the, the, the things that we do, um, when we could be using things like hempcrete, um, which are, you know, fire resistant, termite resistant, um, which makes a lot more sense, um, at least to me. But I think that, that, you know, you raise a really important point. Why is this disconnect? and? I think it really, unfortunately, just boils down to the people that have the knowledge, the scientists and the researchers and the environmental um, you know, scientists that have this knowledge aren't getting enough of a voice. The people that they're speaking to aren't hearing them. Um, and again, unfortunately, uh, is it money that wins out overall? Is it, uh, is it just this driving... Capitalism and and, and economic uh, demand—you know this. You've you've always got to return shares to shareholders. You've always got to make money, Um, at what cost? And 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 I think that that's a question um, that we as a species are going to have to start answering very soon, um, if we're going to try and reduce the the burden that's already on the Great Mother.
0: Yeah, it's all like that glass ceiling concept. Like you know, we're growing, growing, growing profit over. And then at what cost? And even now it's some people still that cost is just not there for them because they can't see it in front of their face. But I've Mm. had, I've spoken with psychologists on this term eco-anxiety and that denial is the purest form of fear, fear that Mm. climate change is real, the fear that things are changing and it's easier to deny it than to really sit with it because it is very scary. And if you don't have that connection to earth, to belonging to a community, to plants, to the sky above, I like to call it, and the earth underneath your feet, it's a really lonely and scary place.
1: And that's one of the things I think that um, Western cultures in particular, you know, in particular, of, um, we've just really disconnected ourselves from from nature, haven't we? I mean travel around if you're fortunate and get to spend time with a lot of the different uh, indigenous and first nations cultures around the world, they haven't destroyed and spoiled their environment. The land that they come from is sacred. Um, And that's certainly something that we can't, you know, can't say the same for uh, a lot of these, uh, you know, corporatized and and Western world. I mean, the the whole idea of continued and expansive growth is is actually against nature. I mean, even when you look at a, a plant or a tree, it will grow to its capacity and then it will stop and it will just sustain itself. A tree doesn't just climb until, you know, it reaches the, mm. the upper you know, atmosphere. It, 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 it has that predefined. It just sits there. It has its, um, what it intends to achieve. It gets there and then it sustains itself there. Um, and I think that that's true of many animals as well. It's not just plants, is it? It's, uh, you're mm. not going to sit there and see animals that will go out of their way um, to actually change an environment in such a way that it's actually worse for themselves. I think we're the only species yeah. that can claim that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's pretty sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, interesting concepts to think about, especially yeah, when you've just put it that way, you know, we're the only ones that have made the environment worse. Normally you adapt to make it easier for yourself, but no, not the human species. <laughs>
1: Mm. Well, I mean, even look at uh, the way that we treat each other. I mean, I think that's uh, that's probably where a lot of this comes down to is that you know we're we we're a, we're a species that designed nuclear weapons, um, and I wonder, and I you know to paraphrase Einstein, I think it was, it's that you know I don't think a, a mouse would uh, design the mousetrap. trap, um, but that's essentially what we've done for ourselves. It's there's just so many things that uh, the way that we treat each other. Um, you know, and, and not only internationally, but, uh, within our own communities, um, there's that, uh, disconnection of community. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's something that we really need to fight for, um, and, and learn more about and and try and re-engage in, particularly in a world of social media. I mean, the social media is wonderful to keep up to date with things and, it's but it's changed our it's changed our nature. Um, it's uh, both connected and isolated. Uh, it's quite a quite a paradox, if you will. But instead of going to see someone and spend time with someone and you know give someone a hug, um, now it's all done remotely, and, and and that's again just further, I think, contributing to, to disconnection. Um, and it's not it's not you know what we are as a species. We're a social species. Um, we need that interconnection and we need that, um, you know, in a, in a environment that's supportive, um, as you say, nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as it's being stripped away, um, how much, how much are we losing of ourselves? Um, even though we don't know it, it's a, it's a really interesting concept and in that, uh, you know, this thing that you were, uh, bringing up, uh, previously, this kind of eco anxiety, it's, uh. It's really interesting. It's actually, you know, from our discussions, I've been trying to read up on it and learn more about it because there's, uh, I'm sure that there's a great proportion of the population that are actually feeling
0: that. Well, it's hard on the weekend not to, you know, have those, especially because I'm researching it, not mm. to have those feelings and then think about other people who would be feeling maybe even worse than me and having that fear because they don't understand their body's natural reaction to what is happening. So Mm. uh, the weekend was a really interesting, um, for those who aren't Australian, maybe it was a very hot weekend, (laughs) but yeah, it was an interesting um, place to be when I've got all this knowledge now of how the body is responding and being concerned for the, the group, the collective Mm. and I read this great quote this morning, actually. It was, uh, in our culture, society is supposed to serve the individual, not the other way around. So I was making a comparison to China's society expectations where you as an individual serve society for the family, for the clan and the state. But in our Western civilization, now society serves us and we try and reap everything. And that's just a perfect example of how, you know, we put a now – the environmental costs, or how do we quantify nature? People want to put a dollar value on the resource. Mm. It's invaluable. How can you put a dollar value on something that sustains us and gives us so much when we are literally barely giving anything in return at the moment?
1: Mm. No, it's right, and and I think um, I think one thing that uh, is at least a currency that everyone can appreciate is is the future that you're giving to your kids i mean your kids and grandkids um you know there's that idea i think uh in ancient greece that um you know wisdom you know there are there are people that will plant gardens which they will never benefit from um and and that's that's the idea that we need we need to have this uh, you know we need to be shepherds um of our environment and. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You know, the, uh, the West um, and uh, the you know, corporate mentality um, where, yeah, everything has a price and, and uh, more is better. It just needs to change. It's, it, it is not sustainable. Um, and I'm not sitting there saying that I, I have a solution to it because I certainly <laughs> don't. Um, and I think that probably is where it boils down to where a lot of that anxiety comes from particularly from an environmental you know, uh, cause, is as one person, um, you then start to question, well, what can I do? Um, what can I do about this when it's actually, um, you know, it's corporations and it's entire countries that are actually deforesting areas or, or contributing to pollution. I just read the other day that they found in one of the deepest areas of the ocean plastic bags. Mm. I mean, look at plastic bags, how it's destroying marine life and all these types of things. It is just absurd. Um, and there really is no excuse for why we continue on. I mean, plastic is, is very useful for you know a great many things, but I certainly don't need, you know, I'm quite happy to have my fish and chips wrapped up in, in newspaper yeah. like it used to be. Um, you know, straws made out of plastic, well, you know, you can use bamboo and all sorts of other things. I mean, we just need to make more educated um, decisions that don't that aren't always focused on a bottom line that has a dollar value attached to it. We need to start thinking about things in, in an environmental currency um, that looks at sustainability and, and, and uh, the ecology, not just of the plants and the animals and the fungi, um, but also of the people that inhabit that land um, because we're all different. And that's, that, that's the beauty. I mean, It'd be so boring if we're all the same. Yeah. That's why I love, you know, it's why we all love travel, isn't it? You mm. love going and meeting new people and listening to new languages and seeing trees that you've never seen before and, and taking in cultures. Um, that's that's part of this this love of learning um and exploration and adventure that I think in many ways, you know, we're we're losing, um, which is unfortunate because of our uh connection to the digital world. Yeah, I can certainly. Yeah. I can certainly look at what, um, uh, you know, it would be like to sit uh, on the Amalfi coast in Italy or to sit in a, in a rainforest in Peru, um, but it's not the same as going there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, the research shows um, a lot more people now, they watch documentaries, nature documentaries, and the body's levels, cortisol levels reduce. So they do feel calmer, but the comp- comparison between that and actually going outside (laughs) is a lot more like actually just walking outside and sitting next to a tree or something is a completely different response on the body. So it's, you know, most people now like, Oh, I watched that nature documentary and I've spoken about it before, but even the visual aspect of seeing something like Machu Picchu, for example, and you see these incredible pictures and bright green, vibrant, bush jungle, and then you go there and your preconceived idea is challenged because it's probably not that green. It's maybe raining. You're not getting your Instagram photo. And then what does that do to your mental health? That instant, mm. you know, response of the brain, like, Oh, that's not what I expected. And then you can mm. see how this all trickles into little other problems that just come back to the digital worlds or just even our connection to self, not understanding us, how we work Mm. and relying on external benefits to make us feel whole again.
1: It's a really good point. I think the um, you mentioned something which is really important, I think, which is uh, uh, how would a kid look at this? You know, how would a child look at this? They'd answer it pretty bluntly and they'd, they'd tell you exactly what they thought. And I think that's one of the problems is that we, we lose that, childlike adventure and and sense of wonder um, because we become adults. And that's where the term adulterated, you know, when you start to think about it, um, it has new meaning that we, we lose that that connection to wonder and adventure and, and things like that. And as you say, you know, well, I didn't get the shot that I wanted. You start thinking about things in and just not being mindful and not, not enjoying the actual moment, smelling the different smells, enjoying the experience with other people talking about your feelings about that, I mean, that's where that community is. Um, and it's, it's engagement, you know, it's, it's I don't know, there's just so much that, uh, there's so much I think we, we need to reevaluate, um, not only as ourselves, um, you know, what's what's priority for ourselves and uh, what is, you know, we need to determine success, um, I think, in, in, in different measurements, um, both for ourselves, um, as communities, as nations, um, and even uh, if we, you know, could be so bold to, you know, as a, as a species, because um, otherwise, I think our our time on here uh, on this beautiful planet may be brief. Um, uh, which is, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I feel we are at. Um, mm. Is we're definitely at a time where, as a people, we need to make some really serious decisions. Yes, there will be change. Um and people, as you say, you know, so rightly, um, they're a fear that they're so afraid of change. But through change, some pretty amazing things can happen too. So I think as long as people feel engaged with that, um, and we can see change that, you know, is maybe more equitable um for everyone. And it's not just, you know, so many people that reap benefits if that benefit is money, um, but everyone should have um the ability to come along uh, you know, for the ride when it comes to our environmental sustainability and health.
0: Yeah it's um, interesting because my sister actually she's reading Matthew McConaughey's book and he um, describes I think a First Nations group and they didn't have much and they were so happy and they were sitting around a circle and singing and dancing and just enjoying their time together and then he looked at say a family in America and, you know, none of them are happy. They are striving for success, working so many hours a day. And it was this shift of change and transformation. And sometimes we've forgotten that it's okay to kind of take a step back. And it's coming back to that growth idea that we talked about. But, you know, when you take a step back and just listen and tune in to you, yourself and everything around you, you realize – what's important a little bit. And obviously this is coming from my yoga background as well, but, you know, we take that time through meditation and mindfulness mm-hmm. and being present to just tune in to us. And you realize that we are nature. We are the environment we're the whole entire universe, we are a reflection of the cosmos. And then you can't begin to separate yourself from what's happening anymore because you realize mm. you're exactly the same thing. Mm.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, um, I guess going back to that idea of why do we see that in, in the Western culture so much? One of the only things I can come up with is, is that, um, busyness and, and being busy is almost worn as a badge of honor. Mm. You know, I'm so busy, I'm doing this and, da, 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 and I don't have time for that. And, and, you know, work almost always work related. Um, so it doesn't give you the time. Um, in, in a way it, you know to or, or put the importance on time for yourself time to relax uh, I, and, and I can say this honestly I mean as a PhD student and researcher and doing all sorts of other things I do find myself at times being incredibly busy mm. and it's at that time you start to feel the stress you start to feel the disconnect so having you know again whether it's yoga or other mindful uh, mindfulness processes and uh, that you can use every day, um, to, to stay connected, I think is absolutely you know, incredibly important to because um, otherwise you just start going down a rabbit hole that you know can take either years of counseling or, or you know, in some cases, yeah. horribly medication because it causes illness. Um, and that's all you know, dis ease is it's just a dis ease. Your body is not in homeostasis anymore, there is a loss of balance, um, and that's uh, balance is what we should be seeking. Yeah. You know, I think that's uh, that's one of the most important lessons I've ever learnt from nature, um, is that it's not about optimised. It is an optimised system, but it's optimised because of balance. It's not optimised because it's weighted too heavily to one side or another. And uh, that's, again, what a lot of the uh, Eastern practices, um, you know, yoga, meditation and others, um, really seek out.
0: Yeah, and I actually originally wanted to ask you, how do you look to plants to enhance that deep connection between us and nature. But maybe you can even talk about um, an experience that you've witnessed or been a part of through your First Nations um, engagement or even just through your research. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but it would be nicer, like here just a really cool example that maybe even just going outside and looking at a leaf. <laughs>
1: As in, as in, looking at that deep connection between humans and nature, yeah, and, yeah. and how plants do that. Yeah, look, mm. I mean, it's it's um, there are so many ways I think, um, and it could be something as simple as watching watching how people sometimes, when you give them a plant, you know, let's say a bon- a bonsai or something mm. like that, something that's beautiful that you can look at, but it actually takes care to to flourish, and so mm. that person now is responsible for a living thing. And you watch them water it and they trim it and they take care of it and they pull the dead leaves off it. And it's a relationship. Um, and that's one thing I think that even simply, anyone that keeps a garden um, is generally a pretty happy person. You know, they love spending time in their garden. They go out <laughs> and are they getting something from it? Well, of course they are. They're not only, you know, they're interacting with a soil microbiome. They're, they're smelling different things. They're looking at the beauty of the different plants and the colors that they are. Um but they're also in many instances you know harvesting fruit or harvesting food. so it's a it's a a, a giving relationship. Um, the take 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 of our society is not what you will see in implementation in a garden. you have to put back. so whether it's you know m- uh, putting manure in the soil, taking care of the plant, so that you can get something back. and that mutualistic relationship is is mm. is one that you know most people that even have a even have a garden that's not for, you know, that's not cultivated for um, harvesting of food, even if it's just, you know, houseplants um, that, are, that are taking the carbon dioxide out of the air and, you know, giving oxygen back, kind of an important thing, mm. um, you know, and, and uh, that you just enjoy the aesthetic beauty of it. Um, that is something that, uh, I mean, walking into one of the recent experiences I had, which I really enjoy, was the Chinese Gardens of Friendship, um, and, and down here in sydney down near darling harbour and just walking through and looking at all the, the the way that the plants and the you know the gardens and the waterfalls and everything is created to be natural it doesn't look forced it looks like nature um would would have created it and that's where i think um human beings can really you know whether it's the negative ions coming off the, the water and the waterfalls and there's just so many ways that we can connect um, with nature. I mean, that's far and above looking at take the the direct interaction with plants um, as a medicine. You know, so whether you're taking herbs like Piper methysticum or Carvacarba for anxiety, or uh, Hypericum perforatum, St. John's Wort for mild to moderate depression, like they're they're actually measurable. You know, there's many clinical studies that show that they're of benefit. But what I think is really interesting too is this growing interest in a lot of the psychedelic plants and fungi, um, and I, I would argue that for that deep connection um, that many people experience when they have used psychedelics, um, such as you know whether that would be you know the um, some of the psilocybin genus of fungi um, where psilocybin uh, comes from, that could play a very important role in. Connection. many people talk about how it alters their, their feeling uh, in, in nature and even the colors that they perceive. Um, again, whether it was the, uh, the old brew ayahuasca, um, as seen down in, in the, uh, South America, um, or even looking at things like uh, Lophophora Williamsi, um, which is more commonly known as peyote, where mescaline comes from. I mean, there's all sorts of different plants and, uh, and, and fungi, and, and we've used them. Throughout the ages, whether that is to uh, connect with with spirit, whether that is to connect with each other, whether that is to connect directly with nature, yes, to all. I mean, it's one of those kind of multiple choice questions. E, all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it certainly doesn't mean that they're not without consequence. Um, of course, you know, plants. Just because they're they're green and natural, doesn't mean they they can't be you know dangerous. Of course, there's many many toxins come from plants as well. So I think it's, you know, that connection of of plants can come from so many levels, you know, whether it's just interacting with our own receptors um, from a pharmacological point of view or just being something as simple as developing a relationship with a plant and taking care of it. Um, yeah, it's it, it all increases that deeper connection.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more and I'm a pretty open book but through my experiences with psychedelics as well, just see, I probably wasn't in the best mental health state (laughs) in my life, but when I did um, experiment a little bit, I saw the world in a completely different way. And I don't think I've ever looked back since. And obviously this comes with a warning. It's not for everyone. And you know, there are side effects, like you've also said, Justin, but I saw nature breathe Mm. I saw everything moving as if I we were the same breath. And this was before mm. I was, you know, I was still practicing yoga, but ne- not as deep as I am now. And the colors were made like just on an ex, another level. And then I came mm. home back to Australia and I was walking along my local beach and I just saw it in a completely different light. Not the beach that I walked every single day before I went traveling, but the beach now with the beautiful colors and the incredible sand. And I was able to dissect every little bit of nature that was there and appreciate it for what it was.
1: Mm, Your perception changed Mm. and your focus changed. And, and, and that's, um, it is such a thing. I mean, look, there's been some incredible studies that are being done now, um, over at John Hopkins and over in the UK that have actually looked at, you know, medically guided, um, you know psychotherapy as well um but you know looking at psilocybin and other psychedelics that have actually been able to reduce depression and and that uh, you know one dose and and, and a series of um, counseling sessions has been able to have people have uh, the ongoing effect for for months uh, you know over six months then there was another study that was looking at uh, end of life um and and how people adjusted to that that had terminal illnesses and they had a psychedelic experience that was under uh, medical guidance. And they, in many instances, one of the things I find so fascinating is that they actually put it down to one of the most significant moments or events or experiences of their life. You know, Um, and, and it's just, you know, so we know there's something there. There's a lot of research now and interest, as I said, in the, in psychedelics, because it helps us understand ourselves. And as you say, uh, appreciate more um where we are um and how we're connected with everything uh, in nature and i mean as a um obviously as someone that studied it um i can definitely uh connect with when you were saying about colors um mm-hmm. and this is something for me I, i'm very severely colorblind um have been obviously um i i think it was a uh, mum mum got a message from the old teacher at my, (laughs) at my school when I was meant to be coloring something in green and it was a different color altogether. (laughs) And, you know, that's, um, obviously being a, you know, working in, working with plants, identifying plants in the field and all that. It's very difficult, um, because of my, my color blindness, but it's something that certainly changed. Um, I've noticed with, um, Certain psychedelic use mm. uh, becomes much more vibrant, and and to your to your point, um, just to elaborate on something that you don't even need psychedelics to appreciate um, is when you're talking about you saw nature breathe, mm. um, and one thing if you've ever looked at a time lapse of plants and how they grow and how they move throughout the the period of a the day, they literally look like they move in yeah. breaths, and they move their each individual leaves to to, to to get the most sunlight so that they can, you know, produce the glucose that they need. And it's just that they move at a different speed. And that's one thing that I think, you know, time-lapse definitely makes you appreciate plants in a much greater a level and, and whether, and then there's a whole other conversation we could have about sentience, um, and whether, you know, um, are plants sentient? Do they experience, uh, any type, you know, any type of consciousness, um, and many of the First Nations people would say that they do. It's just at a different um, time and speed. I'm not necessarily sitting there advocating for, you know, apologising to your grass because you're walking on it to go and get the mail. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly think, and and one of the experiences I've noticed firsthand is I've one of my favourite things to do when I have time is to, and no pandemic, uh, is to travel to the different old growth forests around the world. And I think anyone that's that's been to some of these old growth forests, some of the, you know, Sequoia, Sempervirens, the um, uh, coastal redwoods and and uh, Sequoia forests that you see over in North America, or even some of the beautiful mountain ash forests that are old growth that we have here in Australia. You, you can, you walk into these places and I feel like I'm being watched. I feel like I'm being observed. Um, you can feel there's there's just something so special about these places, and um, I, I can't explain it. Um, and I'm sure there are many wiser people uh, out there that could. But uh, there's there's just we we see ourselves, you know, as being the top of the food chain, as the um, you know the apex of um, the the kingdom animalia. Um, And we dismiss the fact, even that other animals are able to have the same type of sentience that we have. Where's the proof for that? I just find it kind of laughable. Um, Again, just because until we can measure such things, until we can really understand, um, we have to keep an open mind. Um, And that's, uh, you know, it's one of the things I love so much about science, although many, you know, many in science sometimes can be quite closed minded about things. But I think that the we have to have a, a sense of wonder and open-mindedness; otherwise, we're we're going to lose our way. And I guess, in a way, we already have.
0: We yeah. already have. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about the forest and feeling like it's watching you, because when you're in a natural environment that immense and powerful, you feel small. <laughs> you feel. Oh, you do. And you, and as humans now, we feel like we are the top of the food chain, and you know that feeling of being threatened like oh because you realize that you're just a human (laughs) Mm -hmm. one one little light being on the planet and (laughs) I've um I when I did a four-day I did a four-day trek in Colombia through the jungle and that challenged me like nothing else has challenged me before and it was I couldn't believe how I was one day work, walking on a cliff full of sand and next day, you know, full of palm trees, cocoa um, trees as well. Mm. And just the gravity of nature was just so mm. immense. And I really took that time to just be like, okay, this is how powerful nature is. Mm. And it, it doesn't have to be overseas. It can be in Australia. We have amazing landscapes here.
1: Oh, we so do. And I mean, just sitting on the hood of my car when I was 17 years old, looking up at the Milky Way on a, on an mm. inky black sky, it really does make you feel insignificant. You're absolutely right. And I think that, that that's, it, it's our environment in a way that probably contributes a great deal to that. Because, you know, living here in Sydney at the moment for me, I can get on a train that's going to arrive pretty much on time. Um, I don't feel threatened necessarily by other things, maybe apart from my own species in certain areas, <laughs> and at certain times at night maybe, but we have controlled the environment. And it's not surprising that the you know, majority of human beings like to not only live with other people because we're social creatures, but because in this environment, it is a controlled and palatable environment. Now, you take that human being and you throw them out into the middle of the wilderness and suddenly they're terrified because they have no control over the variables that are there and what could potentially happen. And I think that it's, you know, when, again, going back way back to when, you know, at the start of this uh, talk where I said, one of the things I found so fascinating, even when I was a kid, was just how at home our First Nations people are in the bush. They're just at home. it, It is just like as comfortable as you would be walking around your own living room and I just, I, I was in awe of that. I just found that so fascinating. And that, as a, as a species, we tend to try and control the environments we live in to try and reduce that fear. Um, you know, as Australians, we go swimming in the ocean all the time. You know, and, and shark attacks and things like that happen. They're very infrequent, but it's almost always in people's minds. And anyone that lives in Australia, of course, you know, every second thing will kill you. Yeah. Um, which uh, many, many of your overseas listeners may not appreciate but that's the that's this um again going back to that kind of disconnection is that why do we seek out cities why do we seek out this it's not just for social interaction and for uh, as a means of commerce but there's a certain safety in it um and yeah we when as you say when you go into a environment that is just profoundly um not you know not being uh, changed by by humankind, and and there's just not much of us around, um, and it's just nature in its raw form. Uh, many of us can find that uh, disconcerting and
0: and uh, are scared of it. Yeah, it's something that yeah comes up a lot through my research. Um, that element of fear and how it's governing, because we're so everything's for comfort now and. Mm. You know, we don't know how to deal with that level of stress or fear or emotions that come up because we've been comfortable for quite a long time. Mm. And to bring it to something a bit more, um, I don't know if it's economical but more science based, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask how climate change impacts plant species we need for today and maybe in the future and how that maybe has the potential to impact the health system as we know it.
1: Yeah, look, I think um, the current health system as it is, of course, uh, at least in Australia, doesn't rely too heavily on plants. Um, Obviously, most of the medicines that are uh, manufactured uh, for uh, the population here in Australia, and and, uh, particularly other countries, of course, as well, um, are synthesised chemically. But that doesn't mean that the original original, uh, chemical substance or, or structure didn't come from nature. So looking at things like, uh, I don't know, uh, what's an example, Gallagher officinalis or goat through, uh, which is where, um, the drug, uh, metformin, one of the most prescribed mm-hmm. drugs for diabetes in the world. Um, or, you know, digitalis purpurea, uh, the foxglove, uh, where, uh, you know, um, digitalis and, and, uh, cardiac glycoside uh, is uh, used for heart failure. I mean, these are just a couple of examples. I mean, filipendula, uh, uh, asperia, and uh, uh, salix alba, for where you know, the um, salicylic acid and acetylsalicylic acid, which is known as aspirin, come from. So from, a, from, a, from that perspective of how will it affect the health system today, well, it won't necessarily, but it will in the future. And the reason it could potentially is because, you know, to get back to your question is plants, if there is massive climate change and environmental destruction, are not going to fare well, certain plants. There will be some plants that will adapt to the new environment and there'll be others that can't. Mm. And as I said, getting back to that idea that, you know, if there's two hundred and fifty to 350,000 flowering plant species, and that's an estimate because we can't, we still haven't been able to even count them all. Um, and we've only studied, let's say, 18 to 20,000 for medicinal virtue. Um, then what? What are we losing um, for you know future potential medical treatments? Um, and that's you know as a pharmacognosist, um, that is is probably my greatest concern. Um, is that uh, you know from a conservation side of things, from a climate change perspective, plants are very you know th- they are quite robust. They are you know. But um, they can't, a plant just can't, you know, pick up its pot or pick up its, you yeah. know, uproot and go move to a new favorable um, environmental condition. Um, and just like humans, you know, they need the right mix of, of different variables, you know, light, carbon dioxide, soil nutrients, water, and pH, and they need that to thrive and survive. So if anything changes in that, that can be the end of a, of a tiny little, you know, as I said, Madagascan fungus or some tiny little shrub that grows in just this very, very, you know, uh, uh, isolated environment. And that could have housed chemistry that could have changed the way that a certain disease is treated. Um, and so that's, that to me is also showing that, you know, it's not going, it's, well, it's not going to necessarily affect the healthcare system right now, Mm. But it will in the future. Um, and and you know, that's again why I've constantly been trying, you know, I've been a lecturer for 15 years, and I've I've constantly been trying to encourage some of those students that are that have more of a inclination, if you will, to ethnopharmacology, ethnobotany, the, the study of of plants and how they're used by cultures um, to engage with our First Nations people around the world, um, try and identify and capture their Um, stories and how they've used plants so that it's preserved for them as a people, um, you know, whether that's uh, written or auditory form, um, but also so that we can work with them to try and identify some of the plants that have been used as medicines that science doesn't know um, so that we can, and and the only way I think that that's going to happen is if the people are brought along for that ride, um, you know, that it's not just, Seen as oh, this is a new drug for this, and corporate, you know, a corporate yeah. company is going to take it all the way through and, and just profit, 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 profit. Um, that needs to be given back to the people, and they can use that um, to support their own community.
0: Yeah, and a lot of the time that knowledge has been yeah, like you said, lost within that community itself because of mm-hmm. everything that's happened. So even for them, it's nice for them to reconnect with the things that are around them if that knowledge has been lost as well.
1: Well, particularly, again, going back to the tech, you know, the technology age that we live in, a lot of these young'uns um, that come from such cultures are wanting to leave. They want to go and try their hand in the big city. And and, and so, therefore, they're not learning firsthand from the, the shamans or the medicine people of, of their culture. And then it's being lost um, because as those people die out and they don't have apprentices or, you know to, to mentor and, and guide and show the ways um, – of of how those plants are used, whether those are for psychedelic or spiritual journeys, or whether it's just for medicine and, and tummy ache, um, it's such a loss. Because that is that is the accumulated knowledge of hundreds of generations in some instances, thousands and thousands of years, just come to an end like that. And so I you know, personally I I have a love of ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany. I certainly don't have the requisite skill set as, as um, you know, Schultes and others that have ventured into the Amazon, spent decades of their lives speaking and learning local dialogues of the, of the indigenous peoples and, and then trying to capture that data. It's such a special skill set. And I think that you know, there are, if, if I can encourage anyone listening that loves nature and has an interest in culture, um, and learning about cultures to to try and do that. What what an amazing thing! Because uh, if it's done right, it can benefit the culture and humanity.
0: Yeah, I think can I do that? No, <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> could.
1: Anyone could go and become like the the, the Indiana Jones of uh, of finding yeah. new medicines.
0: Yeah. Um I mean that sounds great to me, but it was interesting when you talk about your experiences as a young child and through your teens and young adults as well, but I had a similar experience with which I've talked about before on the podcast, but when I was in Africa and um, we, there was a Bush tribe there who we engaged with, who obviously they don't speak English. Um, So, you know, we connected with them and there was just something deeply rooted between me and them. And I couldn't explain it. And I found it so interesting and somewhat sad that one of the brothers, he decided to take on the role of the medicine um, and the shaman man in the, Mm -hmm. in their little tribe. And the other brother wanted to leave. So he wanted to go into the more Western got little rabbit ears, Western culture of, um, I think we're in Namibia. So I found it so interesting that, you know, one brother was trying to take one path and stay and nurture that community, which had dwindled so much already. And then the other one wanted to venture out and, you know, they were asking for cigarettes and little things like that. Mm. And, you know, you can just see that knowledge loss just starting to happen. And that was quite a few years ago now. So that was my first experience of when knowledge yeah, that it will be mm. lost, and it's really um, important that we facilitate that, and not for our mm. own benefit, for their benefit too, and for what the future holds for us.
1: Absolutely, we need to integrate the best of traditional knowledge and science. Really, I mean, I think that's probably going to be one of the only ways forward: is respecting and acknowledging our past, our, our you know, the, our ancestors, and our Indigenous First Nations people around the world for. Um, if they want to live a certain way um, and not engage with technology, then that is their right as far as I'm concerned. they they should and we should do everything we can to protect that. Um, we should also encourage if there are those that want to you know venture out and 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 uh, do other you know science or whatever it might be that they want to follow to follow their path in life. that should be encouraged as well. but i i, I yeah, I agree. I mean, think about the the thousands of Cultures around the world that are going through that, just like you described right now, mm. um, and that they're at risk um, because maybe their livelihoods or their environment is under direct threat because of, you know, um, corporate greed yeah. um, and and uh, expansion, deforestation, whatever the you know whatever it might be, pollution. Um, I mean, I've, I saw some pictures, and I don't know where it was. I, I think it might have been in a, a Southeast Asian country of just a beach that as far as you could see was just plastic bottles. And it's just heartbreaking, you know, heartbreaking when you see pictures of turtles that have got six pack plastic, you know, know, um, containers wrapped around their necks and, and uh, whales that are, you know, have got so many garbage bags that they've been swallowing when they're trying to swallow plankton or, you know, turtles that swallow plastic because they think it looks like a jellyfish. And that's, this is the direct, you know, uh, ramifications of our irresponsibility. We have been very irresponsible guardians. Um, I sometimes wonder if orangutans would do a better job if we put them in charge. Mm. And you know, I just you know, don't even talk you know, talk about the orangutans in their And their um, environment dwindling because of palm, you know, palm oil. And so, I think it's just time to grow up. You know, I think it's time we have to grow up as a species. We we really need to. Um, start taking uh, this a lot more seriously because this is not a problem that can be, you know, this is not a can that can be kicked down the road anymore. The time for action is actually now. Um, And it's great to see many other countries around the world leading. I I certainly do not place Australia currently uh, in that with our current leadership, not that I wish to get political at all. Um, But we really, you know, for a country that suffers from the, um, you know, the, the great deserts and bushfires and, and desertification and things like that that we do that has very poor water um, uh, management, we really need to start investing in this. Um, you know, if we could start taking some of that water from the tropics up north and and taking it through pipelines or irrigation pathways and canals through the rest of the country, what an amazing, what an, you know, having more trees just so that we can control um, some of the, the temperatures and, and so much that we need to do. Um, but certainly not getting that from the leadership in our country at the moment, which is uh, a shame. Mm.
0: And talking about just my personal experience, I used to work for a government funded um, organization and I ended up leaving because I was no offense to age, but I was the youngest by like 25 years. And, you know, they just weren't ready to hear the things that I had to say about the change that needed to happen. And I've, you know, I was sometimes I wish that I stayed and pushed harder, but it was like a brick wall. <laughs> mm, it was like, mm. oh my gosh, how I need action! I need to do things. I can't sit back f- any longer and wait for the system to change or something to go through mm. in ten years' time. Like it needs to happen now.
1: Yeah, and I look. I think one of the things that I'm most encouraged about um, about our future are the younger generations that are coming through now. Mm. I mean, um, I don't consider myself young. Um, I'm in my mid-40s. Um, I'm kind of in that weird generation between the baby boomers and, mm. and new young'uns <laughs> now. But it has given me an ability to understand acutely what you were just saying, that, you know, beating down walls um, of people that are very close-minded um, and, uh, or protecting vested interests, um, and we won't go down that path. But the, the reality, I think, is that um, with who I've met, and the people that I've met just on my different journeys and different, you know, forays into uh, plant medicine and environmental environmentalism and things like that, I think we are in safe hands because the younger people are really starting to stand up because they're the ones that stand to lose. You know, uh, a lot of the grandparents and things like that, well, they'll be gone, and and uh, we need to start taking care of the the planet and and our environment now so that uh, future generations can actually enjoy it. The fact that we are not giving a better world um to our children uh from generation to generation at least over the last four or five generations you know or at least since the industrial revolution um, i think is just a sad testament that we need to write um, but yeah that's one thing that gives me hope is um is you guys um being able to be the voice for change and the voice for reason because hopefully you will be pursuing uh, you know not only um, you know working for the different environmental charities and and being active active or being an activist um, in this space, but that you 'll also be going into politics that you 'll also be trying to lobby that you 'll also be trying to you know be a voice to change the status quo um, because we really need it <laughs> so <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you know I think it's uh, even though you might think that you 're um, butting up against a brick wall. Um, if if millions of you do that that's how things change mm. and and that's where the strength lies is in in numbers and conviction
0: yeah it i think young people you hit the nail on the head on that one and the hope is is what's gonna get us through and it's so we can have act, this active action which I've, I've explained a few times but just you know not falling into that despair of you know not knowing what to do next but kind of turning mm. to nature and looking at it whether it is plants just looking at another plant that's around you or fostering something that's beyond yourself it's something mm. really nice to be able to then be like yes okay where's the action coming from and what do i need to do
1: absolutely couldn't agree more and i i um i mean as i said we 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 <laughs> We sure haven't done a good job, so it can only get better from here. One hopes, but it's um, as I said, I, I do find a lot of uh, solace um, and comfort in in seeing the uh, younger generations and and how you know um, I'm trying to think of the right word. How plainly I think that they just speak about this, and, and mm. that it's uh, it's so it's it's. I, there's no convincing. I mean, they're, um, they, they can, they can feel it. I mean, I can, I can feel it too. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I did grow up in many, many different places, but the seasons were very, you know, predictable. They're not um, mm. you know, they're not anymore. And, um, I'm not a climate scientist. I, um, obviously the, the, the science is at least fairly clear from many that are, but it's just my experience that is enough to make me make a decision that, you know, I can walk down the street or go down to the beach and just see plastic and garbage everywhere. And it's, uh, we need to start treating old mother earth with a a lot more respect. And I wonder if it's not a indictment on the way that we treat each other. You know, we treat each other um, and, and our planet with a certain level of disdain. And I think that that's because of that, again, you know, disconnection from nature and community. And I think we really need to, Start focusing on these relationships a lot more seriously, and I really appreciate uh, too the 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 fact you know the the opportunity to speak with you uh, today about it because as I said before you you reached out I, I it it enabled me to have a, a really serious thought take some time um, and and give these topics like eco anxiety and things like that some really considered thought because it's it's not something I'd really pondered before so I really appreciate that, um, Matty.
0: No thank you I appreciate you <laughs> speaking to me because at first a lot of people are a bit confused while I've reached out to them but the main reason was I've just wanted to replicate how we are a reflection of our environment and now our mm. reflection our environment is a reflection of us and there mm. is one big disconnect <laughs> and we're hurting the environment's hurting so it's just this collective healing and your experience and through plant medicine and your background was just highlighted all this information and how we can turn to alternate therapies or just understanding nature a little bit better to bring that connection back
1: Mm. so thank you um, (laughs) oh no look it's uh nature is always a wonderful teacher and i think part of the problem is is that we're not taking the time to to reconnect and 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 see those lessons i mean um yeah it's we've come such a, a long way and we are bedazzled by the technology and the amazing age that we live in um but we forget where we come from um and that's just not going to be a recipe for uh for uh, meaningful change i think if we don't start to acknowledge um The wisdom of of our ancestors, the immense uh, beauty and uh, opportunity um, in nature. Um, And by opportunity, I mean that that can be sustainable. Um, Because, yes, it's very clear that uh, corporate greed um, has been a huge driver um, for where we are. And so we really need to start uh, rethinking the models that we herald as being best practice because the evidence suggests otherwise, um, at least from my point of view, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you're very right in just understanding of what we think is working for us and being able to let that go, which is the hardest thing. Change comes with letting go. And Mm -hmm. you know, it's a scary for some people. Yeah,
1: it is. It is. And, um, a selfless rather than selfish mindset, mm. you know, I think is, is going to be the, the future of, of us as a species um, and, and hopefully progressing and flourishing. But, you know, that's unfortunately, um, it, is, it is as much of an individual problem as it is a collective problem. Um, because as we were talking about earlier, the individual can feel completely overwhelmed and just go, "Well, where to start? How do I make change?" Yeah, and it's just by connecting with others that have the same idea, and and voicing it, and that's how things change. Activism, you know, activism is how things change. That is the only way. Um, coming together um, as a united front, and whatever the cause might be, um, and bringing it to people's attention, and having educated discussion about it. Um, Hopefully, with open-minded people, and uh, that's that's the way that anything changes is through education. And I do see that your podcast is, you know, uh, certainly going some way to bridging that gap because it's it's education. Someone can listen in, they can have their view changed, they could hear something, go look it up. You don't actually know um, how what you know what you're doing um, or the conversations that you have uh, are changing the way that other people view the world, and that could be a really good thing. So you know, uh, keep, keep it up. Kudos to you for your, um, for for tackling the, uh, for tackling these topics. And, and certainly, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not going to go away soon. So I could see your podcast being around for a while.
0: (laughs) It's challenging. Um, but in saying that it's allowing me to push, you know, before this, I was yoga, very yoga orientated yoga philosophy. And then I found traditional Chinese medicine through this. So now it's, you know, I'm really broadening and learning more about so many different things, Indigenous First Nations culture and their healing practices as well. So Mm. hopefully I can keep going with it. But, yeah, Um, Yeah. before we finish up, I actually just the one question I like to ask everyone is uh, Mm -hmm. do you have a mindfulness routine or do you have any techniques for people to go out and connect with nature?
1: Oh, look, I think um, your first or the first part of the question is yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I meditate daily and have done for coming up to 10 years. Um, and I did that as part of a way to uh, manage uh, anxiety. And I had a great deal of anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. Diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder back in the day. Medications didn't really work for me. Um, it was, it completely consumed my life. It was really horrible. Um, and the only thing that I found that gave me relief was, uh, mindfulness meditation. And so it's something that I do and have done, um, uh, almost religiously. One could, one could argue, um, an hour a day and, and without it, if I miss it because I'm, I'm busy or, you know, traveling or doing whatever, I really do feel it because mm-hmm. it's, it's just that ability to, to ground, bring me back, um, and remember what's important. Um, you know, and, and, I think for for other people, obviously you can meditate in many different ways. I mean, watering plants can be a meditative process, Um, you know, doing all sorts of uh, different activities, Um, even taking the dog for a walk and just having that uh, interaction with uh, the environment that you're in and and, uh, the relationship you have with your dog can be very meaningful and and mindful, but doing that every day, it's something that people look forward to. Um, But, I think it's, you know, getting your barefoot into some soil or onto some sand, into some mm. dirt, um, you know, gardening, all sorts of things. There's so many things. When when I think uh when I tell people that I meditate and they they immediately, you know, probably think of me in some type of weird lotus position, <laughs> chanting mantras, you know, on a hilltop. Um nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that people need to appreciate that meditation and mindfulness can come in something so simple from mindfully preparing a cup of tea or, or preparing dinner with real, you know, real m- mindfulness and love. Um, that can be a meditative process as well. So I think there's so many ways that people can bring that in, but I always find if you can do it with nature, um, whether that's in a garden or out in a forest or by the beach, um, it, it, there's something extra um, that uh, it's hard to quantify. Um, but it's easy to feel.
0: Yeah. And I think it's been so amazing asking that question because everyone has said something so unique and different and Mm. yours again, (laughs) the same. It's so important to realize that mindfulness and meditation comes in so many different forms. And, you know, the problem we have with society today is the boxes of being, I'm do yoga and that's how I meditate. And I, I, You know, people might want to backlash against me when I say this, but I don't. I think it should be a personal experience and what works for you. I've suffered from anxiety myself as well and, you know, turning to what soothed me and it took me a long time to figure out what it was, but I eventually found something that worked for me and it's kind of fun sometimes finding that, finding, Mm. trying different things just to see, okay, cool, this is how my body reacted to this and then this is how it's reacting to the ocean every morning, completely different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's this weird fascination that uh, humans and science have with uh, pigeonholing things and that it has to be this, or it has to be that that must fit within this rigid structure. Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually guys, that's closed mindedness. We really need more open mindedness, um, both in our communication with each other. Respectful open mind- mindedness is is kind of a thing I have that I think it's going to be the only way forward because Closed-mindedness obviously is against change, mm. um, and uh, you don't have to insult people to to uh, discuss changes in beliefs. Um, but with med- you know with meditation, um, you I, I think, and particularly a a practice of meditation over time, you just start to immediately have more of an open mind um, and are more respectful. Um, that's one thing I found as well that you, I respect other people's opinions. Yes, you can have that opinion, even if I disagree with it. Um, and I'd like to talk to you about it because here's, you know, the ideas that I have, and what are your thoughts around that? Um, it's the only way we're going to progress as a, as a species, I think, is having this very open-minded and mindful, um, you know, discussions about these very important topics. And you're absolutely right. We 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 all get there our own way, and that's part of the wonder of this life, you know, is the we're all just uh, adventurers on our trying to find our way home. Um, you know, and, uh, we need to help each other and not, not hinder each other. Um, that's, uh, that's what, a uh, a kind and, and, uh, open-minded species would do.
0: Yeah. I love the, just trying to find our way home. That's always, <laughs> that's always a really nice one for me because sometimes I can go off on tangents. So yes, it's very nice, um, to have you on the podcast, Justin, I think you've provided an absolute wealth of knowledge and I can't thank you enough.
1: Absolute pleasure, Maddie. Thank you so much. And as I said, uh, you know, amazing work that you're doing talking about these topics. And I'm sure that uh, your listeners very much enjoy um, these these topics and and considering things that they might not have and and hearing other people's opinions. And it's uh, as I said, education is king. It's it's so important, and it doesn't necessarily have to be you know standing in front of a classroom. Um, education comes in so many ways. So thank thank you for for, you know, taking this on board because it is a very important topic um, and one that, you know, we really do need to start taking far more seriously.
0: We have now come to the meditation part of the podcast. So like always, if you're driving, pulling over, if you want to participate or finding a comfortable seat, laying down even if you find that sitting is uncomfortable. And taking a few moments here to reground, start by closing the eyes or having a soft gaze at the tip of the nose, observing that rise and fall of the chest, the air moving against the nostrils, that subtle pause at the top of the inhalation and that gentle pause at the bottom of the exhalation. Start to notice how the breath travels through the entire body, moving through the veins, moving with the blood to all parts of you, moving from the fingertips to the toe tips to the top of the skull. Finding the breath as your anchor. Maybe it's at the tip of the nose, maybe it's at the lungs, or maybe the whole entire body is breathing just noticing the breath bringing your awareness to this time and this place this body and every part of you the physical body and the subtle body remembering that you're the conduit between the heaven above and the earth beneath you feeling that protection from both sides and begin to envision a white light streaming from the sky above you down through the crown of the head, down through the whole entire body and out through the feet. Maybe this white light is showering over you or streaming down, knowing that the healing qualities of this white light bring with it happiness, joy, deep, deep nourishment. And as this white light still continues to move down from the sky towards the feet and the earth, being that conduit of energy that you are, noticing how the color begins to change from white at the crown of the head towards purple at the space between the eyebrows. As it moves down towards the throat, it changes to the color of blue. As it moves further down into the heart, it changes to green. As it moves further down into the belly, it shifts to yellow. Down towards the sacral region, it shifts to orange. And then further down to the tailbone, it changes to the color of red. Noticing this spectrum of colors, this rainbow happening from the crown of the head to the tailbone, moving through your energy and chakra systems, the crown, the third eye, the throat, the heart, the belly, the sacral region and the tailbone, the white, the purple, the blue, the green, the yellow, the orange and the red. Allowing this light of rainbow spectrum to move through your entire body as the conduit, allowing yourself to clear space, to nourish, to clear out the old so the new and wonderful can move through you. Noticing maybe that one color has decided to stay in the mind's eye. Whatever that color is, allowing it to just be there to heal you where it needs to be healed. Maybe you have the full rainbow spectrum today. That is also okay. And maybe it's just that color of white that is still moving through your body knowing that whatever is showing up for you is doing the healing that your body and soul needs right now. Allowing yourself to be the conduit, the new energy to move through you and the old to move out. Giving yourself that opportunity to release and surrender to the earth and the sky above. Giving yourself that deep, deep nourishment, As the colors begin to move through your whole body, the white, the purple, the blue, the green, the yellow, the orange and the red, all colors of the rainbow are within you, are embodied by you and are a reflection of you. And you can begin now to lose the imagery of the colors, and just be here with you and the breath in this place of calm and stillness. Noticing the rise and fall of the chest, the air moving against the nostrils. Gently drawing your awareness further outwards, knowing that those colors and that rainbow spectrum will forever be within you, that you will forever be the conduit between the heaven above and the earth beneath you that you will always find deep, deep nourishment with your environment around you and the environment within you. Scanning the body from the fingertips to the toe tips to the top of the skull. Noticing the sounds around you, your internal voice, your breath, my voice, the other sounds that may be in the room. Deepening the breath allowing yourself to slowly make your way back to this time and this place this physical body this consciousness and when you feel ready you can stay here in silent meditation or you can begin to flutter the eyelids open coming back to the room being here in deep nourishment and reflection of self and the environment the hope in me acknowledges the hope in you. Thank you for listening to Connection to Source. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcast. If this podcast brought up any concerns, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue, eHeadspace or Kids Helpline. To find out more, visit connectiontosourcepodcast.com.